Good morning, church. Welcome back uh, yet again to our second live gathering. Uh, it just warms my heart again to be back with the body. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but it is one of those things that you kind of take for granted that every week you can get up and go to church. And when that's gone, I just realized how much I really missed that. Um, while it was nice to have a slow Sunday morning at home with the family, I just, I, to the core of me, missed this gathering. So I just am, am thrilled to be here again this morning. If you are watching online, we want to say good morning to you and welcome. Uh, my, my prayer throughout this whole thing, for those who are watching from home, is that that would become sacred space. So whether you're watching in the living room, the den, garage, wherever, I, I just pray that the Spirit meets you there and you just encounter the life and truth of God's Word. Uh, and to Watertown, Huron, and Aberdeen, welcome to you guys as well. And to the great room, welcome. We love you guys. Glad that you're joining us just across the hall. Maybe we'll see you in the foyer in passing, but we love you. And we're excited this morning to dive back in to John chapter 13. Uh, as we dive into John chapter 13, I want to begin by highlighting one of the fundamental laws of childhood. And one of the fundamental laws of childhood, and you know this, if you have small kids, if you have nieces, nephews, grandkids, you've been around small kids, you know this to be true. And a fundamental law of childhood is that children repeat things at the most inopportune times that they've heard previously. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, so I, I read a couple stories this week that I think highlight this, this idea well. Uh, one father was talking about how uh, in their home, he and his daughter would play this game where he would say, I see someone's belly, I'm going to tickle it, right? And he would tickle her and she would laugh. And he said, this is all fun and games until they were on the subway, right? They're riding public transit. And this gentleman sits down in the seat across from them and his belly pokes out. You know, I don't know if it was through the buttons or what, but his daughter jumps off. She goes, I see someone's belly. I'm going to tickle it. Right? And his dad was, you can just imagine, like, as a father of young kids, I'm like, that's a nightmare. Like, there's a hundred reasons why you should never tickle a stranger's belly. Right? Don't do it. Uh, another uh, dad talked about carrying his daughter through a baseball stadium, and he's kind of got her on his shoulder. And all of a sudden, he hears her yell, hey, mister, we don't pick our noses. Hey, mister, I said, we don't pick our noses, right? And you know that that's something that she's heard many times before, and she is just passing on the wisdom, right? This is, you just don't do this, right? That's what her parents always tell her. And, and kids do this because they're just sponges. I mean, they, they soak it all in. And I think in, in one hand, this is why scripture teaches, like in Deuteronomy chapter six, to talk about the scriptures as you're walking along the road, as you're sleeping, uh, as you're going about your day, because kids... It just, they absorb it. And, and even as an adult, I, I find this to be true because in a hundred ways, I am becoming like my father, right? Those things that I soaked in uh, as, as a young child are now, they're, they're just part of me. They're part of how I live. They're part of the pattern of the way that I do life. So I, I find myself saying things that, that I never thought I would say. Like the other day, I told my kids, hey, shut the front door because I'm not paying to heat the whole or cool the whole neighborhood, right? And I remember my dad saying that. And I was like, oh no. Like, it's happening. I'm becoming my father. And that, that's for sure not bad at all. But it's one of those things like those patterns just come back, right? And there, there's a couple of reasons for this one. I'm like my father because it's, I share his DNA. His life is part of me. He raised me. It was that he spoke into my life. 
And, and so biblically, I find this concept interesting in Ephesians 5, where, where Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says this. He says in Ephesians 5, 1, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, when Paul talks about being imitators of God, he, he doesn't mean that you just try really hard to mimic the behaviors of Jesus. No, when, when Paul talks about being imitators of God, what he means is this. You have been transformed. You have been redeemed. As you become a Christ follower, you are no longer dead in sins and transgressions, but the Holy Spirit resides in you. And so the pattern, the way of living that we see Jesus walking out in Scripture is the way that we are to live. So in John chapter 15, last week, Pastor Steve uh, talked about this moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And one of the things Pastor Steve said is, he says, at the core of who Jesus is, is a servant heart. That's just, that's just part of his character. And then Pastor Steve challenged us with this. He says, we do best when we embrace that same servant heart. And so John chapter 13, we read this last week where Jesus says, you know these things, you know that you're called to live a servant life, but he says, you will be blessed if you live it out. And part of the fullness of life that we are called to experience is living and walking the same kind of servant-oriented lifestyle that we see Jesus living and modeling for the disciples. And finally, Steve challenged us with this. He said, get messy for the cause of Christ. And one of the things that haunted me about John chapter 13 last week was John 13 verse 15. And it says this. It says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. In other words, the way that we see Jesus living and loving and serving is the very same kind of pattern that we are to live and to walk in. This week, as we finish the last half of John chapter 13, uh, Jesus is going to raise the bar even higher as he calls us to love one another. And so this week, I want to dive into that. That's our big idea, is to follow Jesus' command, to love one another as I have loved you. And, and I, I want to walk through this, and I want to understand, what does Jesus mean that we're to love one another? What, what, what is love? How do we define that? And what does it mean to love one another as I have loved you, in the same way, in the same pattern? What does that look like? And so with that, we turn to John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. There Jesus says this. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, tell you one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. 
When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked him, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The end of John chapter 13 marks a significant shift in the gospel of John. After chapter 13, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 begin a long teaching of Jesus. And really from this point on, the gospel of John begins to look toward the cross. You heard Jesus talk about how the time has come where the Father, God the Father, will glorify Jesus. And in the gospel of John, what he's talking about is the cross is this moment where Jesus will be lifted up, where Jesus will be glorified. And so what you have, starting at the tail end of chapter 13, all the way through to chapter 18, is you have this moment where Jesus is leaving this final and significant teaching with his disciples. It's this moment where Jesus is getting ready to fulfill his purpose, which is to die on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. But in this moment, over a shared meal with his disciples, he wants to bring them this last and significant teaching. And and, and you think about it, if you had an opportunity to leave final words with someone. Those words matter. They have weight. They have significance. It's your one opportunity to leave an impact, to leave a legacy. It's that final moment. What would you say? And what is fascinating is this command that Jesus gives his disciples at the end of John chapter 13. Did you notice this? In verse 34, he says, a new command. Now, I think this is fascinating. Jesus doesn't say, "I, I highly suggest It would be to your benefit too. You might want to consider. No, Jesus says, this is a new command. He says, a new command I give you. You are to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, they'll know my disciples if you love one another. By the way, did you notice he says it three times in two verses? Love one another, love one another, love one another. This is the new command. Now, in some ways, this is not a new command at all. The command to love one another goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And and even rabbis and the Pharisees knew this. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is asked about the law, he says, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here, Jesus goes one step further and he says, here's my new command. Love one another. But he says, you are to do it as I have loved you in the same way, in the same pattern that I have demonstrated to you what love is. So, Jesus says, you are called to love one another in the same way. And what's fascinating is that story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is sandwiched in between this teaching on love. Did you notice John chapter 13 verse 1? It says this says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that phrase, he loved them to the end, points likely to two, two things. It can mean that he loved them uh, up through and demonstrating that on the cross up until his final moments. That phrase can also mean that Jesus loved them to the utmost. And so John chapter 13 begins with this phrase saying of Jesus saying, I have loved the, my disciples to the utmost. 
And then Jesus goes on to wash their feet. And, and washing the disciples' feet is about the most humbling thing that you can imagine. In, in a first century Jewish home at this time, it was good hospitality to wash someone's feet, but as the host, you would never do that. You would hire or pay someone else to do that. That was the work of a servant. It was never the work of the host. And what I think is interesting is uh, John actually tells us that, that God the Father placed all power and authority under Jesus' feet. And when Jesus is given all power and authority, what does he do? He immediately puts on a towel, gets down on his knees, and washes his disciples' dirty and gross feet that have been walking in sweaty sandals through dusty roads. And Jesus demonstrates this kind of humble, sacrificial love. So here's the big idea for us. We are to live out Jesus' command to love one another. We are to live out Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. And here, here's what I want to suggest to you. That living out a life of love is to follow Jesus' pattern of humble and sacrificial service driven by a love for God that shows itself in a love for others. And I think we can put it simply this way, that love puts service into action. Love puts service into action. And if we are called to love one another as Jesus has loved us, I think we are called to love in a humble and self-sacrificial way, driven by a love for God that manifests itself in a love for, for others. But I think here, here's part of the challenge. I think we have to define what we mean by the concept of love. I, I think love is, is a very culturally accepted term. We like that. Like, that would be the easiest, like, if I wanted to preach like a really easy, fluffy sermon, I would just stop right there. Like, let's just love one another. Let's just do it. It's easy. But I think when we grasp the implication of what Jesus is talking about here, this should bring us to our knees in humble confession and repentance and asking God to give us the grace and to give us the courage to love one another well. Because culturally, I think we reduce love to, to a, a very deep emotional feeling. And so when we talk about love, we mean it's, it's I, I feel very deeply this affection for another. And I see this play out when I work with couples as they're preparing for marriage. Um, sadly, I sometimes work with couples who are, are trying to decide if they're going to get a divorce. And as we work towards reconciliation, as we're having these conversations, I, I often hear this phrase. They'll talk about how they fell in love. And maybe later they'll talk about how, yeah, we just sort of fell out of love. And, and that language is interesting to me because when we talk about falling into or falling out of, it makes love sound like something that's sort of haphazard. Like, I don't know how it happened. We just, like, I fell in a hole. Like, I just walked right into love and there it was. But biblically, I don't think love is, is, is just this deep affection. It's, it's so much more than an emotion. And, and then we use the word love in ordinary, everyday ways. We talk about, like, I love this restaurant. I love Philly cheesesteak sandwiches because they're delicious. Meat and cheese is hard to beat. We talk about, I love this movie. And, and, and the, the, it's not bad to say that, but, but we use the word love in so many ordinary contexts that I think we get it watered down. And so when we say love one another, it's like, what do we mean by that? And when we look back at the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor, we have to recognize that that love for God and pouring our life to him then begins to define what love is and what love looks like. And so our definition of love has to align with what scripture calls us to in love, and we have to live that out to the utmost. 
So here's what I want to suggest to you, is that biblical love will be defined this way. It is an overwhelming concern for the flourishing and well-being of another that compels me to serve in self-sacrificial ways. I put John 15, 13 there so you can kind of see the context of this. In John 15, 13, uh, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus talks about this self-sacrificial love where he is going to go to the cross to demonstrate his love for them. He will literally lay down his life in love for us. That's the very definition of love. Look at John chapter 13. Love is Jesus getting down on his hands and feet and washing his disciples' feet. It's humble. It's sacrificial. Love is Ephesians 5 where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Man, that that phrase terrifies me as a husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And a hundred ways, I am a selfish person. And I look at that text and I go, wow, that's difficult. So I want to suggest to you that biblical love is an overwhelming concern for the flourishing and well-being of another that says, I want to pour into and invest my life in them because Christ has poured his life and invested his love in me. And if I'm becoming more and more like him, love becomes more and more of how I live. So what are key components of biblical love? What does this look like tangibly? What does this look like practically? Let me flesh this out for you some more. And to do this, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is, if you've been to a wedding, you've heard this, right? I, I read this at nearly every wedding that I do. But I always preface it with this. Like, this is one of those passages of Scripture that my, my concern is we see it so often, and you see it on wall hangings. My, my concern is that it becomes so familiar that we look at 1 Corinthians 13 and we go, isn't that cute? What a cute definition of love. But I, I want us to look at this with fresh eyes this morning and look at the reality of what love calls us to. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Listen to this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That, that is a profound definition of love. Let's stop right there at the beginning. Love is patient. Love is kind. If we just stop there, I look at that and go, that is a tall order. But when you see what Paul calls us to, we have to recognize that this life of love that we are called to is significant and it is life-changing. It is a new pattern and a new way of living and being in the world. And church, hear, hear me this morning. Can I suggest to you, we have a lot of work to do in this arena. Love does not dishonor others. Y'all, based on what I see on Facebook, we got a lot of work to do. 
Based on what I see in social media, we have a lot of work to do to demonstrate to the world what the love and the grace of Jesus Christ looks like. Can I tell you that I am sick and tired of seeing us label one another dumb liberals or stupid conservatives? That is entirely out of place and inappropriate for the people of God. Can we move beyond that and live a kind of love that is patient, that is kind, that does not envy, that does not boast, that does not dishonor others? You might have a truthful point, but if you speak truth in a way that dishonors, you have done damage and done wounding, and you have not spoken truth. Y'all, if you can speak in the tongue of men and angels, if you give all you possess to the poor and give your body over to the flames and hardship, but you don't have love, Paul says you have gained absolutely nothing. We've got to live it in love. Notice what Paul says. He says love does not... Delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. A key component to love is truth. We have to love in truth. Ephesians 4, I think, breaks this down a little bit more. Let me me read this for you. Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says this. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people, that's the church, for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Side note. Uh, pastors are not the hired hand to do all the ministry. Our role and our calling is to prepare us collectively to step into works of service. It was he who gave some to the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to prepare God's people. All of us step collectively into a life of service. So going back to John chapter 13, Jesus says, you know this, blessed are you if you do this. As he demonstrates to his disciples washing their feet, And we are all called together to step into acts of service. Verse 13, let me continue Ephesians 4. Uh, To equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, when we reach maturity, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, catch this, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Meaning we more and more reflect who Jesus is as we speak truth in love to one another. From him, from Jesus, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, right? Paul's using a body metaphor, right? You have a role to play. Some of us are a ligament. Some of us are a muscle. And as we work together, as we serve together in unity, as we're speaking truth in love to one another, we grow together. And look, look at what he says at the end of verse 16. The body grows and builds itself up in what? In love as each part does its work. Right? Paul is, is drawing, I think, on the teaching and the lifestyle of Jesus here to say, Jesus demonstrated a life of love and a life of service, and the body of Christ is called to live this out. We're called to speak truth and love to one another, because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices with truth. Can I, can I make this more tangible for us this morning? Let, let me flesh this out. So I drew this, this two-by-two two diagram Right, we've got the, the horizontal axis of love and the vertical axis of truth. I want to suggest to you that love and truth have to coincide together because as Paul says, we are called to speak truth and love. And as we speak truth and love, the whole body grows together in maturity towards truth. Now, here's what I think happens. Culturally, our culture would love to say, this is what love is here. So this quadrant is love without truth. Got that? As we come down the, the vertical axis, love without truth. Culture says, what I want you to do is love me through unconditional acceptance. 
And, and what I think our culture means by that is don't question my lifestyle. Don't question the things that you disagree with. I just want you to wholesale accept who I am and how I live. I don't want you to speak truth to me. And our culture would have us believe that this is what love looks like. I want to suggest to you that there's no such thing as love without truth. It's not possible. If you pull truth out of love, it ceases to be love. And here's what I mean by that. Let's do a thought experiment together. Imagine you live on a road where there's a bridge out. And where that bridge is out, you know, they've set up reflective signs saying danger, bridge is out. And let's say for the sake of our argument that a storm comes through and, and destroys all that signage. And, and you've got some family and friends who are on their way uh, to, to come visit. And, and it's dark, maybe it's hard to see. And you know that bridge is out, but you don't have cell service. You can't communicate to them. And you go, oh my gosh, my family is headed right for that bridge. That's out. I don't have any way to warn them. What, what would you do? You, you would do whatever it took to warn them, right? Like you would run out in the street and you would be waving your arms like a crazy person saying like, hey, stop, the bridge is out. You're not going to be able to see it in the dark. You would warn them, right? Because you know what they're doing is headed for destruction. Listen, love without truth is, is, is like in that scenario, if you go, oh, the bridge is out, but who am I? I don't want to question that. You're headed on that road towards the bridge that's out. You, you do you. No, right? You would speak the truth. You would call the warning to save them from disaster. Listen, in a culture that's far from Christ, we need to speak the truth of the gospel into people who desperately need hope and redemption and reconciliation, right? But he, he, here's, here's maybe, I think, one of our besetting sins, right? For most of us, we go, yeah, truth without love, or love without truth, like, let's not go there. But I think a lot of us get stuck here in apathy, right? And apathy is this place of, of no truth, no love. And, and by love, I don't, again, it's, this is not just an affection. I mean, being willing to invest our lives, to walk alongside of someone, to humbly and self-sacrificially serve them. And some of us, we go, man, things culturally are so complicated. I don't know where to start to make a difference. I don't know how to do anything differently. I'm just one small voice. What difference can I make? And so we live without love and we live without truth. And we go, I'm just going to try to survive. And, and I think the besetting sin of cultural Christianity in America is a body of Christ that can say, we're just going to try to get through and survive and pursue the American dream. We were never called to pursue the American dream. We were called to take up our cross and follow Jesus in the self-sacrificial way of loving and serving others. There is no room for apathy in the cause of Christ because the truth that we possess is way too significant. But, but then I think we go here. We want to do truth without love, and this is abrasive correction. And so we want to grab the bullhorn, and we want to yell truth into culture. But if we could speak in the tongues of men and angels, and we get a faith that move mountains but have not love, we're nothing. Because I think what we need to do is demonstrate a gospel urgency that speaks truth through love, that's willing to get messy for the cause of Christ, as Pastor Steve called us to last week. This is, I'm going to step in and I'm going to serve with self-sacrificial urgency. Because the truth that we have and the life that we've been called to is far too significant to lose that gospel urgency to speak the truth of Jesus into a dying world. One scholar said it this way. This is, his name is Gary Burge. He wrote a, a great commentary on the gospel of John. He said this. He said, zeal for truth and the command to love have sometimes been at odds in our evangelical world. I think he's right on there. In our evangelical world, the call to truth has sometimes been at odds with our call to love. And in some ways, it's easy to yell truth into a world that seems resistant. And we go, yeah, see, they don't want to listen. 
God did not call us to stand at a distance and yell truth to a resistant world. God said, go. Go make disciples. Go get in the mess. Go invest your lives with broken people. Go get involved in things that are complicated and things you don't understand. And offer your life in a self-sacrificial way to humbly serve one another. Wrap the towel around your, face, around your waist. Get down on your knees and do things that are humble and that are beneath you. Because Christ has called us to be that kind of presence in a lost and dying world. And in a hundred ways, I want to look at John chapter 13 and go, ah, Jesus, isn't there an easier way? Can I just write a blog or, you know, post memes or something? No. I can't get past the Great Commission to go. We're we're sent people. Core to our identity is that we are sent into a broken world to bear witness to both truth and love together. So again, let me come back to that big idea. Jesus' command is to love one another. But notice I highlighted the second part of this. As I have loved you. And again, this is part of what makes this command significant. It's not just that we're called to love one another, but we are called to love as Jesus in the same way, in the same pattern that he has demonstrated love to us. And so let me me hit these quick. The first way is, is humble sacrifice. I mean, read John chapter 13. Watch the way Jesus gets down on his knees and serves his disciples. That's, that's humble service. And, and to me, again, one of the most jarring things is that right before Jesus serves his disciples, it says that, that all power was placed under his feet. And Steve asked this, this phenomenal question. He said, if you had all the power in the world, what would you do with it? Jesus had all power and authority, and he chose to get down on his knees and to wash the feet of his disciples. Secondly, I think the love of Jesus is sacrificial. John 13, 1, Jesus loved them to the end or to the utmost. John 13, 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. John uh, 13, 33 to 38, he predicts his death. And there's this moment where teacher and Lord, the one who has all power and authority given to him, he's going to offer his love in a sacrificial way. He's going to lay down his life for others. And he says, love one another as I have loved you in the same way, in the same pattern. Here's the one that gets me is he also calls us to love even those who are difficult. What struck me as I read John chapter 13 is think, think about who is at the table. Judas Iscariot is sitting at the table, and Judas is the one who is going to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And I want us to grasp the complexity of of this betrayal. In first century Judaism, to sit down over a meal to one another was sacred and intimate space. There was covenantal language that was implicit in the symbol of sitting down to a meal together. When you sat down over a meal, someone said, I've opened my life to you. I've opened my home to you. I have let you into an intimate circle of friendship in which I am willing to be open and to be vulnerable. Judas is sitting at that table. He has done life with Jesus for a couple years. He has walked alongside of him. And Jesus predicts that in John chapter 13. He, he talks about how Judas is going to betray him. And by the way, did you notice the way Jesus' humanity comes through there? In John chapter 13, verse 21, it says, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Because one of his dear friends is going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And the thing that strikes me is that Jesus calls us to love even those who are difficult. He calls us to love those who who, who betray us. He calls us to love those who have wounded us. 
And, and I just kept thinking of, of Matthew chapter 5 here, right? You, you know this. Matthew 5 verse 43, he says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be patient. Be kind. Do not dishonor your enemies. Don't be filled with envy for your enemies. Keep no record of wrong against your enemies. Oh, that changes the whole application of that. I have a hard time being patient and kind with my family sometimes, let alone my enemies. Let me ask you, who's your enemy this morning? Who's that person that their name, their face, something scrolls by your feed, you see it and it's just maybe some anger, maybe some resentment starts to, your stomach kind of turns over, you get kind of that sick feeling of anxiety. Love your enemies in a humble, sacrificial, other-oriented way. Oh, and by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, it also said, says this. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And I would go, yep, that's easy. Amen to that. Uh, verse 22. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That word raka, it means empty-headed. It would be like calling someone a moron, right? And the idea there is that you do damage to their humanity because as someone created in the image of God, when you say you are empty-headed, you fool, you are defaming someone who was created in the image of Almighty God, someone who was called to reflect the very glory and dignity of humanity that God invested them with. And, and, and the words there are significant. You bring judgment on yourself. You are in danger of being separated from God because you're demonstrating a character that is not of Jesus. And, and I wish there was a way to get around this idea of love those who are difficult. Like, Jesus, could you just have stopped before you washed Judas' feet? Did you have to wash his too? Because now that means I have to go and serve in a sacrificial way those that I find really difficult. So let me ask you this question. Why does this matter? Like, what, what's the significance of this? And, and I think the significance of, of, of this idea of living out the life of love is this, that love is the identifying feature of Christ followers. Notice what Jesus says in 1335. By this, by your love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The identifying feature, if you, if you stood 100 people in a room and you go, man, how can we tell who's a believer? You would be able to tell because the believer should be the one who is characterized by a life of humble, sacrificial, other-oriented, selfless love on behalf of the others who are in the room. I, I want to read you this quote. I think it's going to be on the screen. It's long, but I think this encapsulate it, encapsulates it better than I could say it. This is, again, Gary Burge, who's a New Testament scholar. He says it this way. He says, the command to love has its first application in the body of Christ. When a non-Christian steps foot inside a church, this should be his or her first observation. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Tertullian wrote, Tertullian was an early church father and theologian, significant figure in church history. He said, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. By brand, he means like a cattle brand, the signifying feature of those who belong to Jesus. See, they say, he's talking about people outside the church. See, they say how the Christians love one another. See how they're ready even to die for one another. 
In the earliest church, the social caring and commitment of Christians to one another was a profound testimony in a Roman world with its sharp social divisions. Nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. There are many places where you can go to find communities of shared interests. There are many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music or gardening or politics. But it is the mandate, a new command, Jesus says. It is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a circle of Christ followers who invest in one another because Christ invested in them, who exhibit love not based on the mutual attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone, including Judas. This matters to the utmost because the identifying features, Jesus says, everyone, did you notice that? He says, everyone, not just other believers, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This is to be the identifying mark and feature of Christ's followers, that we are to live out in a bold way. So, so here's the other question, is, is how, how does this, how does this happen? How do we do this? Because I think one of the chief dangers in preaching is to say, there's this great ideal, like we're called to love, but it becomes so distant and hard that we can never do it. But listen, Jesus never calls us to do anything that he doesn't also give us the grace and the strength and power in the Holy Spirit to actually live out, right? That's the beauty of the Christian faith is that his spirit resides in us, that God graces us to actually live this out. And so I think to to cultivate a love like this, I go back to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. And there he's praying for the church at Ephesus, and he says this. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And Paul says, I pray that you would be rooted and established using both an agricultural and a construction metaphor, that the foundation of your life, that the thing that you draw life and sustenance to face a new day each day, that you would be rooted and established, held firm in Christ's love for you. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this all begins by being rooted in relationship with Christ. I cannot will myself to love sacrificially. I might have thought like, I'm, I'm okay at being selfless. And then I got married. And I realized, like, wow, I'm really selfish. And then I had kids and I was like, wow, kids need a, everything. I'm really selfish. Like it's hard to love even like these new human beings that I help create. Like it's hard to love them selflessly and sacrificially. I can't do this apart from being rooted and established in Jesus. And what I want to su- suggest to you is that being rooted here begins to, to, to ripple out to, to our church Right? This is one of the fundamental places that we are called to to live in a community of people who don't look like us, think like us, act like us, but we are called to love in a humble, selfless, sacrificial way. Our family, friends, like that immediate sphere of influence that God has invested you with, start loving there. And that has a ripple over into the community that we're part of and into culture at large. And so this love is outward moving through church, family, friends, community, culture. Right? We've heard this this pithy saying that, that hurt people hurt people. And you've maybe heard the opposite, that love people love people. I, I think we can make a significant difference when we speak truth in love, humbly, sacrificially serving people, calling them to the truth of the gospel. Let that begin here in the church. Love your family well and teach them in the way of the gospel. Serve your friends well. That ripples out into the community and the culture. I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to jump right to culture and we want to yell into culture, you should love one another. This is how it should look. But listen, loving here in this community 
Loving your church family, loving your family, loving your friends. This gives you the integrity, the character, and the credibility to speak on any sort of public platform here or here. The easiest thing in the world is to be a spokesperson. Because when you're a spokesperson, nobody has any idea if you're actually living it. And we are living in a crisis when over and over and over, leaders are showing them to be people who lack character. Look at the number of moral failures the leaders have had in our culture. It's astronomical. What we need are men and women who follow Jesus Christ, whose moral character is being formed in a heart of love, who are so radically transformed by the redeeming love of Jesus that it becomes who we are, that it leaks out of us, that our our, uh, initial response, our instinctual response is to offer love and mercy and forgiveness and truth, to always speak the truth. And let that ripple out into our community, into our culture. And I think this is what Jesus calls us to. I, I have some response points there. I'll be the first to say, like, I don't love these response points. I think they're true. Like, you should accept Jesus and be rooted in him. Absolutely. That's where it all begins. If you don't know Jesus, I, I pray that you start this journey of knowing him. But I want you to wrestle with this question. How can you live out Jesus' pattern of love in your current context? Like, I wish I had some great way to encapsulate, like, here's your four application points just to do it. But, but I look at this and I go, Jesus, in some ways, this is so fundamentally simple. I need to root my life in Jesus. Set down deep a relationship in him. And out of that, to love others well. And, and by the way, so I, I was thinking about this today, and as we speak into culture, as you have opportunities to, to interact with somebody who has a different perspective than you on, on social media, in person, whatever, I, I want to give you kind of three criteria to run things through. When you're going to speak, I want you to ask three questions. Is it true? Is it loving? Will it point people to Jesus? If you can't verify that it's true, loving, and will point people to, to, to Jesus, maybe let's think twice about whether we say it, repeat it, or pass it on. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, this morning I find myself just humbled by the truth of your word and the life that you call us to. Jesus, you say, you know these things, but you will be blessed if you do them. And God, I think what an opportunity to experience the blessing of being at the forefront of the movement of your kingdom. God, I thank you for gospel truth and for what it calls us to, to a life rooted deeply in you. God, I pray that we would be a people who speak truth and love, who consistently call people back to you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would have a gospel urgency to be people who who want to see others reconciled to you. God, in all the things that we do, may we point people to you. May our one aim in life be to glorify you, Jesus, and to see people come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.